Thank you to the band. Let's give it up for our band. Bringing it. So awesome. So awesome. Um, so we're just going to jump right in, guys. So we are in the book of James. So open your Bibles or scroll in your telephones to the book of James. Um, the way it was supposed to originally work is each week we were going to do a chapter of James. But last week, or last time I got through the first half, which was like, it feels like so long ago, um, we got through the first half of chapter one. And so we're actually just going to kind of take it a half chapter at a time, and that'll pull us into the school year, okay? So we're actually going to do the second half of James chapter one tonight, all right? But first, I want to review a really important part of the first chapter of James, of the first half <laughs> of the first chapter. Are we recording, Zeb? We're all set? You were the man. So here, here's how this works. Um, James chapter 1, look at verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, so a little bit about James real quick. Um, James writes in sort of what I would call like a stream of consciousness, okay? He just kind of goes, all right? But it's not random. He doesn't go point one, point two A, point three. So it's not held up by an outline, but it's not all random either, okay? It's connected. And in his stream of consciousness, in a letter that's meant to be read by dozens of different churches around the world for centuries, the first thing James talks about is suffering, which is important because James understands that suffering is something that is common across classes and races and ethnicities, but also across time, okay? He knows life is hard, and life was much harder for Christians in Rome in the A.D. 40s and 50s than it is now, but James gives how we handle suffering his first priority. And look at what he says. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James 1, verses 2 through 4, and it might be on the board too. Consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We talked about this last time, so we're not going to spend a lot of time reviewing, but I came back to this over and over in the last two weeks, and it has been so huge in my life. I just wanted to share this with you guys. James says to count it as joy, right? He says, can we go to verse 2, John? He says to count it as joy. He doesn't say it is joy. He doesn't say, go, he doesn't expect us to go out and high five, right? We know that. But he says to count it as a good thing. It may not feel like a good thing. It may not look like a good thing. But count it as a good thing. God is doing something good here. When bad things happen in our lives, when bad things hit us from the outside, Look at what it says, verses 2 through 3. When bad things hit us from the outside, consider it joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So external bad things are happening. Your faith external, your faith is being tested. That's internal. And this produces endurance inside you. This builds you up. It fills you up so that you're not lacking anything as a person. God uses trials on the outside, right? God uses trials on the outside to build our hearts on the inside so that we become real people who are closer to God than we were before. Um, this summer has been really good, but it's also been really busy 
for me and a little stressful, a lot stressful for me. Um, changes and phone calls and prep work and a lot going on and difficulties and times when I'll say like, God, what are you doing? Um, but I've seen this take place in my life. And I want to give you an example of it before we get into the new stuff. Um, my wife, Kristen, has just gotten back from, she went to Sweden for a wedding, which was super fun. And then she went to um, Memphis, Tennessee for a very different reason. Um, Kristen's second dad, his name was Russell, he passed away a couple months ago due to cancer. But he's from Tennessee and he loved Tennessee. And so they went there. It would have been his birthday this past Saturday, right? So her family, they went up there to Tennessee just to visit and to see the, the, his family cemetery. They got to go inside, actually broke into, uh, no one lives there anymore, but they got to go, in, go into uh, her dad's old house where he grew up as a kid. No one lives there anymore, so she was able to walk into his room and some things like that. It was, it was really cool. Um, I'm not endorsing that, okay? But it was, it was you get it, it was cool. Um, thank you, Zip. Um, but... Since Kristen's dad passed away, right, so I've never really had uh, a spouse before, and I've never really had a spouse lose someone before, so Kristen would have these, these, these times where she would be very upset, obviously, and I would kind of, uh, and I didn't know what to do, I didn't know how to, re and Kristen plays it very close to the chest anyway, she doesn't like to be talked to in times of distress, right, she likes to deal with it and internalize it on her own. So I didn't know what to do. Well, she comes home from Tennessee, and I've had this long summer, this stressful summer where God's been doing a lot of different things, but I've said, you know, God, why is this happening, or this, or that? And so Kristen comes home last night, and she, or two nights ago, and she starts talking about Memphis, and she starts tearing up, right, and talking about her dad, and getting, and getting sad, and I'm sitting across the, I'm leaning against the, the counter, listening to her talk at the table, and I'm starting to tear up with her. And I'm starting to come around the table and just like hug her and hold her, which is something that we just, we just haven't done yet. I haven't done it. I didn't know if that's what I was supposed to do. And I find myself starting to do this and crying with my wife, which is something that I hadn't done before. And I thought, and I, and I did, I caught myself thinking, what in the world? I just don't do that. What is happening with me? And immediately it hit me, James chapter 1. This is what God's been doing all summer, and he's been doing thousands of other things too, but this is part of it. He's been using these external hard things to work on my heart to show me how to love my wife better. But I just want to land that with you guys for a second. He's doing something, okay? In the bad moments of our lives externally, he is working something good. And I know some of you are so young, and I get that, but I wish someone had told me this growing up too. In the external things in our lives that are bad, he's working on us internally, okay? So keep that in mind. Log that away. He's making something happen in your life. He's molding your heart through bad things. That being said, we're going to get back into the middle of James, and we're just going to churn through it tonight, okay? So we're in James chapter 1, verse 12. We got through 11 last week. We're going into 12, and we're literally, we're going to read some, I'm going to explain some. I'm going to read some, explain some. And that way you guys will have a better grasp on James 1. You can use it at parties. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. James chapter 1. What's a party? You'll find out. James chapter 1, verse 12. Well, maybe you won't. You'll see. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so look at it right here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, we'll come back to that, endures, same thing, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When we endure trials, when we hold on to God during trials, okay? It doesn't say, blessed is the man when the trial ends. It says, blessed is the man or woman, you get what I'm saying, who endures during trials. And what does that mean? How do we endure? How do we hold on to God? A couple ways. We talked about this last week. We hold on to our Bibles, the promises that are in them. When things get bad, we run to the Scriptures first. We hold on through prayer. We communicate with God about how we feel about this. And we worship God in the bad things through prayer and also community. Sundays and Wednesdays, being around the church and comforted by other people who are going through other things and they're worshiping and figuring it out just like us. This is how you endure, right? This is how you hold on to God during the bad things. And then remember, in James chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The testing of our faith produces endurance. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And now here in verse 12, again, the one who endures under trial, the one who is steadfast under trial, will receive the crown of life. God is he's connecting it. You see, it's not random. God is working that in you. He's teaching you and growing you in endurance and steadfastness during trials. And it says in verse 12, He will give us the crown of life after your trial. You get this crown of life. It doesn't say the crown of stuff. It's not something you can see, per se. Okay, this crown. It's life. Here's what this means. If we hold on to God during our trials, right? Not perfectly, but consistently. If we hold on to God during our trial, leaning into our Bible, leaning into prayer, leaning into community, when that trial ends, we will come out of that trial more full, more human, closer to Jesus, more aware, more worshipful, more alive than we were before. Have you ever heard the phrase, trials can make you better or bitter, right? This is kind of an example of that. If you lean into Christ during those times, during those trials, he's, remember verses one, 2 through 4, He's working something in you while you lean in so that when you come out of that trial, you will come out of it differently than you did before you walked into it. You will come out of it with this crown of life, with more life in you than you did beforehand. Verse 13, moving into 13 here. And when I find it, we will read it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right, he goes from trial into temptation. What's going on? Put them together, right? When we go through trials, it can seem enticing to fall into bad stuff. If, I don't, you're not supposed to look at this, right? But if God is putting all this pain on me, I'm ready to check out and look at this. I'm ready to turn my back on God and start acting out. When, we, when pressure gets put on us on top, we're trying to get out from under it any way we can. And so through trials, temptation looks a lot sweeter, a lot stronger. Anything to check out from what's going on in my life, right? This is why stress turns people to, to alcoholism or to pornography or things like that. The pushing on the top tempts us to reach out to other things besides God. And it seems like if God's the one in control, He's the one that's pushing me to these things. He's the one that's tempting 
me. And James is saying, this is not God's plan for you during trials. He is not trying to tempt you. He is not trying to lead you away from him. He hates evil, right? God hates evil. So he cannot tempt you into something that he hates. Verses 14 through 15. But each one of you is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So James is saying, it's not God pushing you out into these things. When the trials push down, instead of you reaching back up to God, you want to dodge out. You use these trials sometimes as an excuse to indulge in these things that are bad. You want these things. It's your own heart. It's our hearts that lead us away from God. The old hymn, sorry, whatever, other than Zeb, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's got a verse in it that says, Prone to Wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're prone to do something, you lean towards it naturally. That's what the hymnist is saying. I'm, I'm prone to lean away from you. That's what James is saying. God's not tempting you. Your own heart is craving these things, which makes his grace that much better. And then it says in 15, when sin is fully done, it gives birth to death. Well, I've sinned Plenty, Ryan, and I'm still kicking as far as I'm concerned, so what do you mean? death? It doesn't have to be physical death. Death in whatever form it takes when we sin. Death to purity, death to patience, death to trust. All these things over and over again lead to this spiritual deadening in our hearts. This is what that looks like. It's not so much that you're not patient anymore, it's that you're not even trying to be patient anymore. It's not that you, you don't trust God. It's that you've quit trying to trust God anymore. It's not that you're not pure. It's that you, you quit trying to be. Through repeated sin, right? Through repeated sin, your heart becomes deadened to things. It gives birth to death. Church doesn't matter as much as it used to. The Bible doesn't matter as much as it used to. Sin really does bring forth death. It numbs our hearts to the things of God. And we'll visit this again in a little while. But continued sinning can muffle our ears to the heart of God, to the call of God. 16 and 17. 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a first fruits among His creatures. Okay, 16 and 17. God is not ultimately trying to tempt you, though there may be temptation. God in, his tri in these trials is not ultimately trying to hurt you, Though there may be pain. And James is saying, remember who you're talking about during these trials. God is the Father of all good gifts. He is the Father of lights. He's like the sun, is what they're comparing him to. He's like the sun. Um, all lights, all good gifts ultimately come from God. If you like Chick-fil-A, right? Now you listen. If you like Chick-fil-A, God invented those flavors. He puts those ideas and passions in people's heads. You like the ocean? 
God. You like good music? God invented melody and harmony. The Trinity is the perfect example of harmony. You like a good story, right? Good movies, good books. Who is the divine author of the greatest story? God. And this is the guy. This is the one who's behind all your trials. He only gives good gifts. He is at work in all your pain. He loves you. And that will never change because He will never change. And in 17, right? Look at verse 17 one more time. It says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights whom there is no change or shifting shadow. The sun is always the sun, right? Clouds get in the way of that and make us think that the sun isn't as bright or isn't as warm. But the sun never changes, no matter what's in front of it. There is no shadow, no cloud can change the sun. No matter what we go through, no matter how many trials cloud out the sun, God is always shining on us. He is always good. He is always moving in kindness towards us. Always. No matter what. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us to pray for wisdom during trials. Wisdom to see this. Wisdom to see that God is never changing. No matter what the circumstances look like, no matter how many clouds are in our lives, the sun is always the sun. It's always as hot and as good as it's always been. God is always God, giving us good for us all the time. Let's move on to verse 18. James chapter 1, verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James, remember, James is talking about how God is always for us. God is always good. And here he uses the greatest example of God's goodness, our salvation. James is saying he went to, remember, he saved you. He went to all these links to save you. He's not going to tempt you. Don't say you're being tempted by God. He's not going to, he saved you. Why would he tempt you? He went to all these lengths to save you. Why would he break you during trials? He's not trying to break you. He's using salvation as the perfect example to show how much God loves us. He's only going to break in your life. Since God loves you, since God went to all these lengths to save you, he's only ever going to break things in your life that need to be rebuilt. He's not out to destroy you. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Narnia, okay, just gained some of you, just lost some of you. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Narnia, he uses this example of salvation like God moving into a house and then remodeling it. We let God come into our house and we tell him to keep, you know, keep the volume down. There's your room. Here's when meal times are. And, and Jesus just starts breaking down walls in our lives. You're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he says back to C.S. Lewis, he says, I'm, making, I'm turning this house into a mansion. I'm turning this house, your heart, into something that's worthy of my glory. During trials, God is saying, I saved you. I'm not going to destroy you. I saved you. Why would I tempt you? I saved you. Why would I destroy you? Everything I do now is part of building your heart into a mansion, but that means I'm going to have to break down some walls. That's why James says to rejoice in trials in verse 2. Rejoice because the walls in your life are being torn down because he's building a mansion. Verses 19 through 20. 19 through 20. This you know, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, 
slow to Facebook, sorry, slow to Instagram, sorry, slow to speak, slow to anger, and for, excuse me, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, anger itself is not bad, right? God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Anger is a form of love, okay? Anger is the form that love takes when there's a threat. Does that make sense? Anger is good. Anger is a part of love, but the, but the, the issue here is being quick to anger, Remember, prone to wander, being prone to anger, having your immediate kickback reaction be quick to complain, quick to start gossiping, quick to start trouble and divide. This is what's not pleasing to God. It's okay to be angry about stuff, but when you're quick to anger, when you're quick to complain, when that is your natural disposition, that doesn't bring any, that doesn't make God look good at all. It says it brings no righteousness to God. That doesn't make God look good at all. That doesn't please God at all. We have to be careful to be, and, and, in the, and I'm not going to sit here, we will talk about social media at some point, but, but that is our culture. You've got, you've got to, you know, you've got to subtweet. You've got to comment on this. You've got to comment on the post. You've got to post on your story how you feel, because if you don't post how you feel, the world will be lost forever. Unless your 11 followers see what you think about this, there, you know, and that, but, but imagine if everybody thought that. That's the world we live in now, right? You've got to get the comment in. You've got to share how you feel. This is the exact opposite of what James is warning us against. James is saying this is not right. You cannot be quick, knee-jerk to do this. All right, moving on. Verse 21. 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word, that's the Bible, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He says, put away filthiness, put away wickedness, so that you can receive the word. Put away filthiness, put away wickedness, so that you can hear what Ryan and Clyde and Bob and Mac and Bo are teaching you. Wickedness affects your ability to hear. Sinfulness affects your ability to hear the Word. Your life, okay, your life and actions will affect how you hear sermons. Okay? Your life and actions will affect how you hear sermons. Remember back in verse 15, sin deadens our hearts. Dead hearts are like dead, dry soil. You put the seed of the teaching, the seed of the, of the worship music on there, but the seeds can't take root. They can't change anything. One of the ways you can tell how someone is doing in youth group is how sometimes they fade out. They used to listen intently, but now they fade away. They've stopped caring over time. It's no surprise that outside of church you hear about how their behavior has changed too. The two are related. There is real soul work going on in sermons. And that work in the sermon is affected by what you do before and after the sermon. Before and after the worship time. What you do during your week affects you. Are your, mine too. Are our actions during the week drying up the soil of our hearts so that it can't take in the word on the weekends? Or are our actions working the soul of our heart to get it ready for what God has to say on Sunday? Verse 22. Verse 22. We're rolling, man. 
but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who fool themselves. This is so important. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. People come to church their whole life. And I say this surrounded by mostly church kids, which is fine. I'm glad. I am too. People come to church their whole life. They hear the Bible preached. They sing songs. And then they go home and nothing changes. They hear the word. You hear the word. But then they do nothing according to what they've learned. They're not, and look at what James, this is scary. This is what he says. They deceive themselves. That means you've tricked yourself. He's not saying they're not Christians. Not only are they not Christians, they think they are. This is a very dangerous spot to be in. They think they're Christian. There's a book sitting on my shelf right now. I haven't read it yet. Can't wait to. It is called The Unsaved Christian. The unsaved, not a believer, Christian. They deceive themselves. Are you, am I, acting out what God's word says? Not perfectly, no one does, but consistently. Are we striving to act out what we hear preached? Are we acting in such a way during the week to where the soil of our heart is tilled and ready to receive what's been taught to us? This is going to be a huge deal, especially when you guys head out to college as well, because then you don't have mom and dad there to till up the soil for you. See what I'm saying? You've got to start doing this now, 23 and 24. And again, you see how this all connects, 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself, he has gone away and immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. This analogy was very hard for me to get my head wrapped around, so I'm just kind of hoping that the Holy Spirit will kind of clear this. I'm going to do the, I'm going to, let's go for it. All right, here we go. The man, but I, I get it, but it's hard to explain it, all right? The man looks at himself in the mirror. He's studying himself, trying to remember what he looks like. When we hear the Bible taught to us, it should tell us more about ourselves, it should tell us what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right, how we can get to know Jesus better. So you come away on Sunday hearing what you've done, what you look like in your heart and how you can change. It's like looking into a mirror for your soul. Does that make sense? Here's kind of where you are. Here's kind of what you look like. It helps us understand what we look like and who we are. Then we act out what we've learned from the Bible. We look in the mirror and see what we need to do to make this as good as it can be, right? And then we go and fix that, unless we forget what we look like. If we don't do, now put it in a church, listen, if we don't do that, if we make no effort to change what our soul looks like, we're like someone who looked in the mirror, who hears the Bible, but instead of being transformed and informed, church was unhelpful and boring, what you see in the mirror of God's Word doesn't impact you. It doesn't affect your heart. So you don't go and change it. 26. Moving into 26 here. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not control his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, 
there's no change in if there's no change in your heart, your religion is what James calls worthless. Church is not a hobby. Matt Chandler says, church is a terrible hobby. Go get a boat. And he's right. Boats are awesome. Boats are fun. You don't have to think on a boat, right? For the most part. Christianity requires work, thought, digging, worship, deep joy. Learning the Bible around other people is meant to grow you and change you. And if it's not, then something is off in our lives. Also note that James, when showing an example of someone's unchanged heart in 26, someone's unchanged heart, he immediately says the tongue, how they talk. Not just bad language, though that's certainly part of it. Are you quick to criticize as soon as you get in the car? Boom, 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 boom. Quick to criticize. Quick to divide. Well, you know, this is what I heard about so-and-so. Well, I can't believe so-and-so would do that. Quick to gossip. Quick to hate on people. Quick to point out flaws even. And this may sound good because this is helpful in, in the church or in your job. But sometimes we can be too quick to critique. Our hearts are bent away from because our hearts aren't in an encouraging good spot. So we're quick to critique. We're quick to criticize. How is your religion impacting your heart? Well, how do you talk to and about other people? How do you talk it's one way we can, again, you see how it's looking in the mirror? If you don't change, it's like you looked in the mirror and you didn't even think about it. Verse 27, 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is James, he's telling us this is what wrong religion is. Here's what the right way to do Christianity Here's how you know you're doing what needs to be done the right way. So it says pure and undefiled, which is correct. So correct religion, true Christianity, is visiting the orphans and widows in their distress. All right, one, that's not a bad thing to do today, right? But let's look at it in context. Orphans and widows in that day and age were people who cannot benefit you. Or to be a widow and an orphan in that day, you can't work. This is why Naomi's situation in the book of Ruth is so devastating, Right? Um, widows and orphans of that day couldn't work. They can't contribute to society. They are the lowest of the low. You gain nothing. I mean, you don't. You gain nothing by going down to visit with them. You see what I mean? Doesn't look good. Doesn't make you look cool. Doesn't improve the status. They can't give you anything for your time. You gain nothing by going to them. James says, that's what Christians do. Christians go to them when they need. Christians make the effort to be with people who cannot help them. Christians make the effort to be with people who cannot help them. When you go talk to the new person, you don't know them. You don't know what they're like. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen with that. You're, you're, you see what I mean? In that moment, they can't really give you anything to benefit you. You see what I mean? You don't get the joy of going to be with the people you already know. You're kind of risking. You're stepping out to visit that person. Or the kid that's just kind of out there a little bit, right? Amen? Come on. I mean, you're, you're doing what you can. And everybody, I think, thinks that the other kid is the one that's kind of weird. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, we're all trying to do that, right? How do you treat the people at school who might 
either damage your popularity, um, the people in your life who might be difficult to talk to, you talking to them and hanging out with them cannot get you anything. How do you handle those people? Or the people in your family, or the people in your church, or the people in your life. I know there's, you know, how do you handle that? For some of us, maybe it's our parents. I don't want to talk to mom and dad. I want to talk to my friends. Mom and dad, I, don't, I can't gain anything from that except for a house and, you know, food and, okay, sorry. Um, but like, but you see what I'm saying? If you, here we go. If you only talk to people, and this isn't just about talking, but I'm using an example. If you only talk to people who make you look good or who you are comfortable around, you're not actually talking to them, you're using them. If you only talk to people who make you look good or who you are comfortable around, you're not actually talking to them, you're using them. As soon as that friendship is no longer comfortable or beneficial to you, you bail. That's not friendship. One of the things James is saying here is Christian, it's a good thing. Christians have the deepest relationships. The best friendships that aren't based on what that other person can do for you. And again, I'm not saying that you can't have friends. Uh, my buddy Gerard's getting married this weekend, and it's going to be so much fun. I'm going to see all my friends from college, and we all kind of have, we're all kind of, kind of nerds and weird in the same way, and we all like the same things. Like, it's going to be awesome. I'm not saying you can't have friends that you get along with or that like the same things, but would you talk to a specific group of people on a regular basis if it wasn't convenient for you, if it didn't help you all the time? Would you talk to that group of people? Or would you be content to remain in your own bubble with a bunch of extroverts like yourself? Or a bunch of introverts like yourself? Or a bunch of kids that go to this school? Or a bunch of kids that don't go to that school? And again, this isn't just about cliques and stuff, but again, I'm trying to make it an example. This is what James is saying. Christians interact with people who cannot benefit them. Because it's not about benefiting, it's about the people the widow and orphan of our own community, in our own eyes. Lastly, he says, so, so that's one thing that Christians do. How do you see relationships with other people? And then he says, unstained from the world. This means exactly what you think it means. It means different. We don't use the same language that, that other people use. We don't listen to the same music and watch the same YouTube videos that, that other people do. We're not the same um, Christians today are characterized by being relevant. How well can we, fit, can we honor God and fit in with the world at the same time? James calls that worthless. Are we spending our time trying to look more like our culture or more like Jesus? And again, I'm not saying that you, the, the, the goal is not to remove ourselves from the culture. We are to be in the world, not of it. In is the first part of that sentence. We're not called to be to ostracize ourselves from the culture. No, absolutely not. But remember what Christ did, right? Into the world to help it, to influence it. But are we spending more? And you know, you know what I'm saying. Are we trying to spend more of our time, the bulk of our time, trying to look more like the world and be discipled by the world? Or are we trying to spend the bulk of our time trying to look more like Jesus. Are we spending our time being poured into by the world around us or by the Savior above us and within us? Let's pray together.